I tell you what, let's take a moment, let's pray, we'll jump in. Father, thankful for your word and pray, God, you bless it to our understanding. Help us to catch up in Deuteronomy. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, we take a vote on the clock. Let's just vote on everything. So, so here's where we're at in Deuteronomy. We've gone through, and remember, Moses is trying to bring every... See, this is interesting. Moses is trying to make sure and go over the past history of Israel to bring them up to speed to where they are to prepare them for crossing over into the land that the Lord is going to give them. And so what we saw last was the defeat of Sihon and Og was the idea. And if you remember from the map we saw, we saw that you go all the way to the right-hand side, the east side of the Jordan River. It goes all the way from the bottom, stretches all the way to the top. Can we show that real quick, Mitch? Is that possible? Sorry. With Mitch, anything is possible. What would Mitch do? Bracelets, right? Um, So notice... Right here in this middle part right here. And actually they're camped out in this area here. All the way up. You're dealing with all the way stretching out. Gad, East Manasseh, Reuben. Occupying all this. Remember they didn't touch Ammon. They didn't touch uh, uh, Moab. They didn't touch Edom. And the reason was is because of blood relation to them. And God had already allotted them that scope of land. Now here's the crazy thing about that. Ammon, Edom, Moab. They're all pagan places. They're not places that are worshiping the one true God. Notice the reason why God doesn't let them be overthrown by Israel is because God is someone who keeps his word. And when he said that he gave that land to them, he did. And he's going to uphold it at all costs. So they dealt with all of this land. They're sitting here camped out probably in this section um, right in here, Mount Nebo section right in here. They're able to look over onto the land across, but they have not crossed over into it. And the thing that we left off with is we've conquered this land over here, this 140, 160 mile stretch of land. And these three tribes can settle in this land, but only the women and children, all the able-bodied men are supposed to go forward and fight with their brothers in order to conquer the rest of the land on the other side of the Jordan. So that's where we left off at. So the next major thing I want to pick up with is chapter three, verse 21. And here's the reason why is because Joshua is the next in command. Moses has forfeited his opportunity to inherit the land by disobeying God's word. He was told to speak to the rock and it would bring forward water. He smacked it twice with his staff and the Lord was angry with him and would not let him enter into the promised land at that point. So look at Deuteronomy 3, 21. I commanded Joshua at that time saying, your eyes have seen all that Yahweh your Elohim has done to these two kings, so Yahweh shall do to all the kingdoms into which you are about to cross. Do not fear them. Here's the reason why. For Yahweh your Elohim is the one fighting for you. Why does Moses stop, and, and, and out of all the people that he's talking to, hone in on Joshua at that moment and tell him that in those two verses? What do you think? Well, he's supposed to. Okay, so God told Moses to instruct Joshua in this way, but what is it that he's communicating? Why does he bother to communicate that to Joshua? What what is he helping him with? Say it again, Dave. Joshua's going to inherit Moses' position and lead the children in, right? Are we familiar with Joshua chapter 1? Be of great courage, do not fear. Be of great courage. Do not fear. Do not fear them. Right? 
Remain true, keep his statutes and commandments, everything is going to go great is the idea. Notice that Moses is saying, here are the past successes. Here's the proof that Yahweh will take care of you. Now, when you go into this land and you see all these scary people, I mean, you know, I mean, think about it. None of these people are soldiers. And they're walking into an area where they have not been for 400 years, so nobody of those generations knows any of the layout of the geography except what maybe the spies told to them when they came back from 40 years previous to that, okay? So we're talking 440 years removed from the situation, and they have built fortified cities and probably know how to use a spear or a bow and an arrow or probably know what it is to ride camels briskly or i don't know but you see what i'm saying they've got more sophisticated warfare than a group of people who did nothing but make bricks for years and years and years and years everybody see why that's important so this whole idea could become really discouraging if you are looking at the earthly elements in light of where you need to go or where god has called you to go in the future time out The goal of overcoming that fear is, what has God done in the past? Reflect on his past faithfulnesses. And I say that bad grammar on purpose because it is multiplied truth is what it is. Now, in light of that reflection that you have, step forward in obedience. You have no reason to fear. Why? God's your fighter. God is your conqueror is the idea. So notice it is strengthening Joshua to uptake that position. Now look at 23. Through 29, I also pleaded with Yahweh at that time, saying, Oh, Yahweh Elohim. I'm sorry. It's not. Yeah, is that Yahweh Elohim? No, it's not. What is that? Adonai, right? Adonai Yahweh. Anytime you see capital L, lowercase O-R-D. I actually have that wrong in my Bible. Shame on me. Adonai Yahweh. Anytime you see capital L, lowercase O-R-D, and then capital G, capital O, capital D, the Lord part is Adonai, the all caps God becomes Yahweh. That's how they maneuver that. So notice, this is Moses pleading with him. Master is the idea. Remember, Yahweh is his personal name. Adonai is the fact that he is the master. So it says here, O Adonai Yahweh, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Let me, I pray, cross over and see the fair land that is beyond the Jordan, that good hill country, and Lebanon. But Yahweh was angry with me on your account and would not listen to me. And Yahweh said to me, Enough. Speak to me no more of this matter. In other words, I have already punished you for this sin. I won't take it back. Now, this is important for us to understand. God does not let Moses go into the promised land. In fact, we have no inkling that he ever got into the promised land until we see the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus is transformed before their eyes. Everybody remember that? And he met with Moses and he met with Elijah, and that was in across from the Jordan River. Does it seem harsh to you that God won't let Moses go. Why? Didn't he disobey? Doesn't sin deserve death? Now hold on. So you said something really interesting. Yes, but what? But he made it up. Can we do that with God? Yeah, I guess not. Can we do that with God? You ever tried that in court? 
Lord, I know I was going 87 and a 35, which I actually had to say to a judge one time. Yeah, 17 years old, trying to impress a girl in a Camaro. There you go. 87 and a 30, yeah. Jim's all of a sudden like, that makes sense, 87 and 35. Yeah. Impress that girl. 87 and a 35. I know I've done that. I know I'm guilty of it. I admit I am wrong. But what you don't know is that all the other times when your cop friend wasn't looking, I was obeying the speed limit. I park in between the lines. I signal before I change lanes. I stop at all stop signs. I'm not talking about a California stop either. I actually put the brake to the floor. So because of all these good things that I've done in the meantime, shouldn't you forgive me of the one bad thing that I've done? Is that how a judge works? It's not how God works either. Isn't that interesting? Is it that God isn't gracious? No, that's not it. God is completely gracious. In fact, God let Moses ascend to the top of a mountain and look over and see the deliverance of everything that God had ever promised to the people. But here's the thing. Get what's going on here. Look what it says. Verse 24. This is so important. You have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. Stop for a second. Has Moses seen amazing things so far? But notice what he says. You have begun to show me. I want to say time out, man. What was all that previous stuff he was showing you? Was it great and amazing things? Was it to go up and to be in the sight of God? Write this down, Moses. Okay, spending 40 days with him? Having that type of intimate conversation? And yet he's saying, you're just now beginning to show me these great things. Why is that? Because God is fulfilling his promises before the people. And Moses is, get this, Moses is now looking back on the sin when he disobeyed the Lord and he's looking at the promise out ahead and what's he concluding? It wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it in my anger to try to beat the people with my words and to turn around and take my step. Rebellious people, drink your water. Because that's what he was doing. And he wasn't allowed to come. I don't think it's unfair of God whatsoever. In fact, if we want to think about it, the wages of sin is? What should have happened to Moses at that moment he hit that rock? God should have killed him. Everybody see that? So there's mercy with the Lord. But this is a consequence of his sin. And he has to live with it. He has to deal with it. He doesn't get to lead them in. So I think that's important for us to see. Now the, the reason why he brings this event up is because it's important because it sets us up for chapter 4. Look at chapter 4.1. <laughs> Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform. Here's the reason. So that you may live and go in and take possession, inherit the land, which Yahweh, your, the Elohim of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of Yahweh your Elohim, which I command you. Now, something very interesting about this. Number one, notice that this commissioning of the people, he's done recounting the history of Israel. This commissioning of the people is essentially saying, context-wise, in light of my great failure and what I am missing out on, and you get to move forward, be faithful to what God says. Don't make the mistake I made. Live 
Notice he divides it up. Live, go in, possess the land. Does everybody see how that's divided up like that? It seems very intent on communicating something. Now notice verse 2 is a don't add and don't take away. Everybody see that? In keeping with the suzerain vassal treaty, remember a suzerain is a great high king who provides to lesser kings if they are submissive to him and are willing to adore and and, 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 uh, commit themselves wholeheartedly to his care. Only the suzerain is allowed to change the requirements of the treaty that's made. The vassals are not. The suzerain is in control. He is graciously allowing them to prosper under his care, under the care of his wing, we would maybe say it that way. So notice, vassals cannot change anything, and notice they shouldn't presume upon the law. Notice that their responsibility is what? What is the key verb that's there? What is it? Keep. 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 Let me say this real quick as just a modern application for us. If we didn't spend so much time arguing with God about His Word and just sought to obey His Word because we have the power of the Holy Spirit, you would see completely different things go on in our lives. Completely different. We wrestle with God so much about basic, plain things. Yet, let's ask the question, are we actively making disciples baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that He has commanded us. Are we doing that? If we're not doing that, then we're off center somewhere in what we've been called to do. So we don't have to argue about that. I've actually heard people argue, well, since Jesus was only talking to the disciples at that moment, He just meant the 11. So they're the only ones who were to disciple anybody? How's that work? How do you explain Paul's ministry with Timothy and pouring into him? You see what I'm saying? People would much rather argue because they don't want to do anything. Notice, it's Moses isn't having it here. Don't change anything. Just do it. Just keep it. Verse 3, your eyes have seen what the Lord has done in the case of Baal Peor. For all the men who followed Baal or Baal, however you want to say it, Peor, uh, Yahweh your Elohim has destroyed them from among you. Does everybody remember that situation? When they came along with the inhabitants of Moab, and the inhabitants of Moab was like, hey, we're all going to Ponderosa. You want to go with us? And they're like, yeah, let's go. And they ended up hanging out, and they didn't just feast, but they started messing around with one another. Next thing you know, everybody's drinking way beyond what they should. And one guy gets so crazy that he takes a Moabite priestess, which was probably a prostitute, and goes to the entrance of the tent of meeting of Yahweh and lays her down right there and has sex with her for everybody to see. It was a party. And if you remember, people start dying because of their sexual misconduct. In fact, we're told that 10,000 people of Israel died that day. Finally, someone comes to their good senses and takes up a spear and rams it through both of them and puts an end to it. We will not tolerate this evil. Our God is greater than this. Dealing with sin and dealing with it decisively. Now notice what he's saying. You look back on that. You saw what God did. You saw what happens when people become disobedient. This is how the Lord deals with disobedience. He disciplines. Why? Because he's a father who loves. He would be a negligent father if he just let them run about. But he will not have his name disgraced amongst the nations. There's too much at stake. His glory is at stake, 
and the salvation of people who don't readily know or accept him is at stake. So notice verse 4, but you who held fast to Yahweh, your Elohim, are alive today, every one of you. In other words, because you were faithful in that time, look, you still have your life. The wages of sin for you were not death that day because you did not sin. Everybody see that? Yes? We good? Anybody lost? Okay. Verse 5, see, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as Yahweh my Elohim commanded me, here's the reason why, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. In other words, Moses taught it, there to do it. Moses taught it, there to do it. Moses taught it, there to do it. It's a real simple formula. It's very simple. God, trusting God with the results of just simply obeying. Now look at 6 through 8. And this is the reason why. If you want to know, what is the reason? Why why is Israel supposed to keep the law? Here's a grand reason, 6 through 8. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, the nations, the pagans, everybody who's sacrificing their kids that lives in the houses around you is the idea, who will hear all these statutes and say, here's the conclusion that pagans make, surely this great nation is wise and understanding people. You know anybody from history that you thought, man, that person's a smart cookie? Anybody ever read C.S. Lewis? Turns your brains to scrambled eggs, doesn't it? Sometimes you're like, what in the world is going on in mere Christianity? Good grief. Smart man. Notice, it's to have an effect. It's to get attention. Pagan nations who don't know God, who are knee-deep in idol worship, are going to stop and look at the lifestyle and the structure of Israel and go, good grief. There's nobody that lives like them. This is incredible. What is the source of their different community aspect that they have? Well, it's Yahweh. Notice it says here, verse 7, For what great nation is there that has a God, notice little g, that's important. Why? Because pagan idols are little g gods. They are fallen angels, demons masquerading as something worth worshiping when they're not. Look what it says. That has a God so near to it, as is Yahweh our Elohim, whenever we call on him. In other words, this nation has access, a privileged access to the creator of all things. There's nobody like them. Now, has anybody ever heard the theory that God created the world and he kind of wound it up like one of those little hoppy toys and then they just kind of hop away and God's distant and he's not intimately involved and he doesn't really know. He just wound the world up and let it go. It's just kind of winding itself down. Has anybody ever heard somebody talk like that? Everybody realize that that's a demonic conception. That's exactly what he's saying here. Why is that? Because we know the opposite of that is, is Israel has a God that's so near to it because when they call out for salvation, when they call out for help, for rescue, their God actually gets involved. What does that tell you about all their gods they worship? Distant, cold, right? Everybody remember whenever Elijah was dealing with those people? All the priests? Call out to Baal. Remember, they're cutting themselves. And sometimes sometimes our English translations mess this up, but it actually says in there that Elijah says something to the nature of, well, maybe your God is in the restroom and can't answer you right now. He actually says that to them. Which just goes to show you there is a gift of sarcasm somewhere. Right? But he actually says that. And then what does he do? He humbly submits himself to Yahweh, the creator of all things, and fire rains down from the sky and consumes everything on his altar. And then Elijah turns around and says, kill all those men, all 700 of them. I think that's how many there are. Maybe there's more, 70, something I can't remember right now. 
Interesting to see. All the other gods, distant, cold, self-seeking. Yahweh, giving, loving, intimate. Total difference. So now let's move into uh, chapter 4, verse 10. Remember the day you stood before Yahweh, your Elohim, at Horeb. Remember, Horeb is Sinai, right? It says, when Yahweh said to me, assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may, number one, learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and number two, that they may teach their children. What, what event is this? Does anybody remember? When is it that all the people were assembled and they heard God's voice? The giving of the Ten Commandments. And here's what you want to see. The emphasis is on the fact that they audibly heard Yahweh speak, and the, He audibly shared his voice with them in that way for two reasons. Number one, they are to live in fear of him. Does that mean reverence? Does that mean humility before him? Does that mean uh, a respect that overcomes you? Absolutely. But does it also mean that you could possibly be scared to death that he could snap your neck at any moment? That's not beyond him. One guy reached out to steady the ark. Dead. Oh man, that's mean of God. He said don't touch it. You see what I'm saying? God always holds fast to his word. He always holds fast to his word. He does not compromise his truth. So that's important. But notice the second thing also is to teach your children. It's supposed to go on. It's supposed to go to the next generation. As dumb as I was at 18 years old, stepping out into the world, and my parents will readily say, and I'm sure every parent would say this, at 18 he was not ready. Everybody would probably say that. But when I stepped out into the world, I knew one thing. I knew that there was a God. I knew that I didn't want anything to do with him at that moment in my life. And I knew that my, my parents were faithful to him. I knew that. It was a shining example. I couldn't get around it. In fact, the day before I moved out, my dad said to me, as long as you live here at this house, you will go to church because you will worship Jesus. So I packed my stuff and I moved out the next day. Ooh, little checkered tabloid history of the pastor, right? But seriously, that's where, that's where I was at that point in my life. I just did not have ears to hear. And because of the grace of the Lord, he slapped me around some and brought me back to my senses, and he humbled me. I guarantee you it's because they were seeking to get that teaching in my life before me. There's the only reason why any of it stuck. Same idea here, same idea here. Verse 11, you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens, darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. Somebody said, don't you know the black, the black's the color of the devil? Right? I said, well, hold on. We got a verse we got to deal with today, right? Thickness and dark and gloom. That's the idea. Notice that. Verse 12, then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of his words, but you saw no form. And that's the point. You saw no form. Only a what? Get that. Why? Because Yahweh is utterly different. I don't even know how else to say it. Every Let me say it this way. Everything that the nations had known and everything that Israel had seen blossoming around them while they were in captivity in Egypt was all framed by a stone carving a wooden burning of something. We're going to bring our kids here and sacrifice. Well, this God that has the, the body of a person but then has the head of a jackal, 
That's the stuff they were dealing with. We've all seen walls, pictures of the walls of Egypt on the tombs and pyramids and stuff, right? That's what they were surrounded with. Notice that he is saying, no, when we talk about Yahweh being holy, we talk about him being set apart and utterly different from anything else that we would have as a frame of reference. So the whole idea is you don't have a form to look to. You don't. You have a voice. The emphasis is on his word, not on his image. You get on his image, well, guess what we start worshiping? Each other. False things demons that's exactly what they want to do they want to say look at this look at this look at this what does Yahweh say listen to my word that's the difference that's how he is holy and utterly different from how the demons have orchestrated their system of worship so notice you saw no form only a voice he declared to you (coughs) excuse me (coughs) his covenant which he commanded you to perform notice that your covenant to perform that is the ten commandments the ten words And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. Does anybody remember why it's two tablets? One for God and one for them. One for the bank and one for you. That's the reason why. It is a legal document with expected terms of which people will abide by. So moving on here. Uh, It says, verse 14. Uh, Let's see. Uh, The Lord God commanded me at that time to teach you the statutes and judgments that you might perform them. There it is again. In the land where you are going over to possess it. Verse 15, so watch yourselves carefully. Why? Because you did not see any form on that day that Yahweh spoke to you at Horeb at Sinai from the midst of the fire. And why is that? So that you do not act corruptly and make graven images. If you think that God is represented in an image, you'll go and you'll make that image. And next thing you know, your intentions may have been good, but you're worshiping that image. Everybody remember when Aaron was like, hey, all the gold you took from Egypt, give to me. Let's make a calf. And what's interesting is he doesn't say this is the cow God. He doesn't say that. What does he say? Does anybody remember when he told the people? This is the God that brought you out of Egypt. And he looks like a cow? What? But what is it? He was trying to put a form. Did he possibly have good intentions? Maybe. Was he probably trying to take a rebellious people? Get this. They got impatient and tired of waiting on the person that was leading them. See, this is why I preach a long time. I'm testing your patience. But in doing that, they're sitting there waiting for him. They're like, man, this is crazy. We need to get, we need, we need to get going here. We need some mystery to get going. And we start rushing everything. Maybe Aaron was coming into the situation trying to, in good intentions, curb them in a direction that still kind of kept them faithful. I don't know. He might have just been wackoing out of it. I'm not for sure. But it didn't change the fact that he didn't say this is some other God. No, this is a God that delivered you from Egypt. What a horrible sin in comparison to this. No, you'll act corruptly. If you don't focus on his word, you'll want to create something to worship. Verse 17, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, like a cow, the likeness of any weaked bird that flies, in the sky, like the god Molech, M-O-L-E-C-H. It's a giant owl is what it is. A giant owl. Actually know that there is one in the United States that's three stories tall. Can't tell you where it's at. Moving on, verse 18. Hmm, fish the internet. All right, verse 18. The likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, any reptiles or anything like that. The likeness of any fish that is in the water of the earth. And notice what it says, beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and moon and the stars, to worship anything that resembles them. 
all the host of heaven. Nothing. Have you ever noticed that a lot of people are people that are spiritual are really big on angels? You ever notice? Well, well, I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. Ain't no difference, man. Just your God looks weird, right? And it's always Charmin baby angels. It's never real angels. It's never like, you know, two wings to cover the face, two wings to cover the feet, two to fly. No, it's always we're naked, you can see our butts, and we got little wings, and there's clouds and tissue everywhere. That's a lot of what happens. And we have this, like, whole thing, you know, let's get out our dream catcher. We, I mean, it's real weird. It's real weird. So notice, the host of heaven, and be drawn away. Notice that. You'll be drawn away from them, and you will worship them and serve them. Those which Yahweh, your Elohim, has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But Yahweh has taken you, and he's brought you out of the iron furnace. Now let me ask you, is that figurative language? Did they literally come out of an iron furnace? For you hermeneutics people, this is an example of figurative language. And the iron furnace is representative of what? Where did they come out of? Egypt. So notice that. The figurative language doesn't need to confuse us. Anytime that figurative language is used in the Bible, there's always a literal meaning behind it. There's always something that's meant by it. I feel bad for such and such. Their their brother just kicked the bucket. Do you immediately get a picture of a guy going, no, what am I saying? He died, he passed away. So notice, even though I'm using a figure of speech, there's a literal meaning behind it. That would save us a lot of problems when we're interpreting things like parables, stories that Jesus tells, and a situation like this. We'll deal with this more in the hermeneutics class. But notice, he brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, from Egypt, to be a people for his own possession as today. Last section here. The punishment for not heeding. Look at verse 25. This is talking about once they get into the land. When you become the father of children and children's children, and have remained long in the land. Notice, you guys have gotten settled. You're no longer wandering around anymore. You've actually got a place to call your home. Look what he says. And act corruptly, and make an idol in the form of anything, and do that which is evil in the sight of Yahweh your Elohim, as to provoke him to anger. Notice, by getting settled and lackadaisical, you become wayward. You've got to keep your wits about you. You've got to keep God is the center, is the idea here. Verse 26, I call heaven and earth to witness against you. Why? Because the Levitical law required for two witnesses in order for a claim to be true or to be verified or ratified for something. Notice, heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you are going over to the Jordan to possess it, to inherit it. And, sorry, you shall not live long on it, but will be utterly destroyed. Notice, The punishment for worshiping another god is you are ejected from the land. Why? Because the land will not suffer any more of it. It's already gone through the junk from the current people that are there. They are to come in in righteousness and to live according to righteousness. Interesting to see. Verse 27. Yahweh will scatter you among the people and you will be left few in number. There's always a remnant. That's important. Among the nations where Yahweh drives you. There you shall serve, there you will serve gods. Now that's interesting. There you will serve gods, the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. What got you kicked out of the land was worshiping other gods. Now out of the land you will be given over to idolatry where you'll worship other gods, only not in your own land, in a pagan land. Everybody see that that's punishment? That's judgment. 
It's a judgment for their actions. Pretty sad. So notice it says here, verse 29, we'll finish up here. But from here, sorry, from there, you will seek Yahweh your Elohim, and you will find him if you search for him with all of your heart and all of your soul. So here's the amazing thing about the Bible. It already tells you the future. Don't we read the rest of the prophets and what we see is that the people became rebellious and idolatrous and they get cast out of the land? Isn't that the whole Babylonian captivity? It is. But what's amazing is, is all they have to do is pay attention to the fourth chapter of Deuteronomy and it saves them from all of that trouble. Let's end on this note. The definition of wisdom is seeing the mistake has already been made by somebody else. And operating, because, operating in such a way because you have that information. Does that make sense? David cheated on his wife, essentially, and got with Bathsheba, who was not his. And his kingdom was never the same after that. Guess what? We don't have to make that mistake. We decided that something else was going to be more important than Yahweh. Well, the children of Israel are a shining example of what happens when you try to raise up a substitute. So let's save all that trouble and operate in wisdom and not follow those sins. That makes sense? It's a pretty simple lesson. Next week, we will finish up and get into chapter 6. I'm, I'm excited to get there and go. So any questions before we wrap up? Great. If some of you wouldn't mind to stay and help with the chairs for one, I'd appreciate it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you, God, for Deuteronomy as a refresher about how important your word is, that we don't need any forms, we don't need any emblems, we don't need any symbols or relics or anything like that. We simply need your truth. So help us, Father, to maintain focus on your word. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.